HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. What is Jewish-Italian food? In Italy, Jewish food is called cucina ebraica, but even many Italians don't know the Jewish origins of some of their favorite dishes. We're going to find out all about this and more today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And indeed, Jewish-Italian cuisine is, is so surprising to many people that even, as I said, even a lot of the Italians don't know the origins of some of their favorite dishes. Not surprising, since Italy is home to the oldest continuous Jewish community in the Western world. In fact, 2,000 years of... of Jewish settlements, and many of the Ju- the delicious recipes and Jewish dishes that have developed have actually, in Italy, have become staples of Italian cuisine. To learn more about this, I have asked a very distinguished panel to join me, not a panel, just friends and, and experts, and we're going to hear some surprising history of a lot of our favorite Italian dishes. We have today with us Jane Cohen, and Jane is an author and food writer, a cookbook author with several cookbooks under her belt, and she's involved in preserving the culinary roots of Jewish cooking and its links to the past. Among her popular books are Jewish Holiday Cooking, Gefilte Variations, and most recently, Around the Passover Table and Cooking for Jewish New Year. Cara da Silva is a noted food historian and award-winning journalist who specializes in writing about food, travel, culture, and ethnicity. She's the author of In Memory's Kitchen, a legacy from Women of Terrazin, a compilation of handwritten recipes and writings by Jewish women in a Nazi concentration camp, attempting to preserve their memories and heritage. Alessandra Rovati is a Jewish Italian, born and raised in Venice. She writes a 
blog called Dinner in Venice about the cuisine and history of Jewish Italy. And she gives very popular cooking classes as well. Welcome to all of you. Um, this is this is a treat for me because as I was doing the research and reading more about Italian Jewish cuisine, I was surprised to learn about so many of the dishes that I had no idea had were actually had Jewish roots uh, in their origins. And of course, everyone knows about the carciofi alla Judea, the fried artichokes, and that's the one dish that everyone can identify, I suppose. Uh, but there are so many more. And Jane, you have done some um, some beautiful writing on kind of the background, the the history of Jews in Italy, and maybe you can fill our listeners in a little bit about the some of this lengthy history. Sure, Linda. Um, well, we know for sure that Jews were living in Rome by at least the second century. BC because that's when the Maccabees, the Maccabees from the Hanukkah story, had sent emissaries to the Roman Senate. And then, of course, Rome was the center of the business world, and so traders and merchants came after that. And they were followed, actually, by slaves um, who were brought to Rome by Pompey and later Titus uh, after the destruction of the Second Temple. But um, Jews flourished in Rome. They flourished in the area around Trastevere. Um, Julius Caesar, in fact, had granted them uh, religious freedom and personal freedom. But there was a much larger Jewish community in the south of Italy, um, especially in Sicily. Um, Sicily was under Arab control for a long time, and um, there was sort of a golden age for the Jews in that area. But things changed greatly uh, after the Edict of Expulsion from Spain. Why? Why would Spain have anything to do with Jewish history there? Well, for one thing, um, Sicily and southern Spain, uh, southern Italy, that is south of Naples, was under Spanish control. So when the Edict of Expulsion came out, Jews had to leave that area, and they started traveling up the peninsula to northern and central Italy. And at the same time, you had this great immigration from Spain and later from Portugal. And we're talking around the 15th century, early yes, 15th yes. century. Right. And, and in addition, at the very same time, there was a massive influx of people coming from the Germanic lands north of Italy because they were fleeing persecution after the plague. So what happened? As a result, there was tremendous overcrowding in the Jewish communities, and Jews were segregated and restricted to certain occupations, and eventually they were restricted to ghettos. So there were ghettos in every single Jewish community in Italy with the exception of Livorno. And each of these ghettos had a very different character from the others. I mean, Well, not only a different character, but also a different cuisine and a different way of cooking. How, um, give us, Kara, I don't know if you want to chime in here, but giving a couple of examples of how the different, how different some of the dishes were, or the the typical type of cooking, from let's say Rome to to Livorno, or or um, we'll get on to Venice with with Alessandra, of course. Um, I don't know that I can say what each 
ghetto have that made it different from the others. But I think the big overall thing to say is what was being alluded to now, which is that the number of things that went into creating Italian Jewish cuisine in terms of all the emigration, in terms of plagues, in terms of fleeing, in terms of being merchants and bringing ingredients in, uh, in terms of who the rulers of a particular city and ghetto were, um, just created a, a cuisine of incredible variety, even though it was all Jewish in some way. And there were also issues about whether some of these dishes were carried and became associated with Jews, but actually some had existed prior to Jews dealing with them, or and in some cases that's true. But for the most part, these are dishes that were brought by the Jews. And obviously the ones in Sicily had more of an Arab Certainly, right. feel to them. And the, As the cuisine in general in Sicily today, it has a yes. lot of Arab influences. Yes. But also the ghetto in Rome was the poorest. So obviously that affected the kinds of foods that could be had there. Mm -hmm. And the ones in Venice, as you will hear, um, were tremendously varied because, in part, of there were so many representatives of so many kinds of Jews, but also because of the merchants and what they brought in by way of spices and various other things. Um, so I think Venice's cuisine is really, I can't say the most unique <laughs> But it had enough coming into it that was really quite different than from elsewhere. It's stunning food. Right. Well, Alessandra, would you, what, is there anything in particular that you feel is, um, sort of separates the, the cooking of Venice, the Jewish cooking of Venice, from a lot of the other parts of Italy? Um, yes, first of all, Venice, we have to remember that in many other parts of Italy, the Jews um, were more adventurous with cooking and introduced some ingredients that were not used by others when they arrived because they traveled more. They were merchants, they were preachers, or simply they were expelled from other countries mm -hmm. where they were used to eating different things. And this happened also in Venice where Jews immigrated um, from different parts of the world because the first Jews to settle in Venice were from northeastern Europe, but then Italian Jews from the areas near Rome arrived and other Jews um, on the flee from the Turks and finally Iberian Jews after the expulsion from Spain and Portugal. And um, and some of these Jews, the, the, the Sephardim in particular, were merchants. At the same time, we have to remember that um, that this this also mirrored the situation of the rest of Venice because Venice, um, in particular after the Crusades between the 11th and the 14th century, had really boosted its its character and status of a sea um, power um, and 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 its relationships with the East. Um, so it was really it, it was the Jews, but not only the Jews who brought in and enjoyed many different types of foods. As as um, uh, Kara here was saying, um, Venetians had access, and not only the Jews, to foods that nobody else in Europe and certainly in Italy had seen. Right, and I was thinking of that too. Is as this cuisine was evolving, we're talking, you know, the. the 
15th century you know, and earlier and, and around that time. The cuisines all over Europe were evolving um, because we had the spice trade. We had, uh, as you mentioned, merchants, travelers. It was everything was was kind of evolving. And the Colombian exchange. exchange. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think one thing that's very um, interesting to note about Jewish cuisine in Italy is that it was influenced by so many immigrants, kind of like the United States in terms of the Jewish community, because you had the influence of uh, Jewish immigrants in the Piedmont area, you had um, German and Austrian in- influence in the north, um, you had the Arabic influences. So uh, you see that played out in very interesting kinds of dishes. Uh, for example, a French dish, um, Polpatone, uh, which is a turkey dish, um, kind of similar to a ballot, ballotine okay. or a gal- galatine. Um, it has some relation to an Ashkenazi stuffed chicken neck or stuffed gooseneck. But what they did with the turkey was they chopped it up, um, mixed it with eggs and, and pistachios and, and veal sometimes, and sewed it back into the turkey skin. And that is um, a very common holiday dish in many parts of uh, northern Italy. Also, mm-hmm. Alessandra's shaking her head. Yes, yes. yeah. <laughs> Chime in. <laughs> yeah. um, and some other specifics. No, I was just going to say that one of the things that characterized uh, Jewish food was the use of goose mm. um, as a substitute for pork, which is so common in Italian food. And this was really like we save the pig everything but the oink. This was everything but the honk. <laughs> and it was used I mean, there was a lot of creativity in Jewish cooking and Jewish adaptation of things. And they used this to reap it for sausage, for prosciutto, for everything that you can imagine. And it did become very associated with Jews. And um, even the skin, the cracklings. Right? Oh, the cracklings! <laughs> the yes, absolutely. The gribbins, what we call, or what my mother called gribbins, right. um, what which was made from, in her case, from chicken or duck and from goose. But um, Jews were so identified with goose, which had come from the German areas with those Jews. Not that there weren't goose geese in Italy before. There were, and they were famous. Jews were famous as um, goose farmers and for foie gras. And um, it was a food very much associated with them by everybody. But when the Germans and all of those people started coming down, um, the it became even more so. Well, when I first learned, I was I was amazed when I first learned about the large production of goose prosciutto, and mm-hmm. I was in Ferrara visiting in Ferrara, mm-hmm. and they and. Uh, Someone showed me that yes, and this was you know you'll see as many geese hanging as you will shanks and, or or ends of pork hanging, and that was all a prosciutto factory. And they were right. All- oh, and in Mortara, it, it, part of uh, Lombardy, that mm-hmm. a city really known for geese. Um, I I think that's one of the wonderful examples that you see how um, the 
Jews learned from their Italian neighbors because they were used to raising geese, but in terms of learning how to make a prosciutto or a salami uh, right. or something like that, they actually learned from their Italian neighbors. Right. And and this didn't make their food any less authentic. As we, I mean, no. Questions of authenticity yeah. come up in my show a yeah. lot, and, oh, this yeah. is, and well, I have a lot of... Authenticity <laughs> is a very tricky term <laughs> you bet. and concept, but I think... There has been fusion since there were borders. And people have been crossing over and things have been changing according to groups. You know, who's on one side, who's on the other, what traditions are um, shared, explored. Adapted and adopted. Adapted (laughs) and adopted, exactly. And I don't think that makes them inauthentic. Absolutely not. I think it's inauthentic when a modern chef put something together and is in a form of fusion that combines eggplant and mozzarella and soy sauce with raspberry jam. <laughs> I'm dubious about that. Yeah, well, that's... Okay. All right. We're not going to go there today. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, but as we're talking about this, um, I wanted to bring in the subject of vegetables because mm. this has often been referred to as as um, attributed to a lot of the uh, Jewish cultures that came into Italy. Carrie, do you want to address that? And then I'm going to turn to Alessandra. Oh, sure. Um, the Jews were very associated with vegetables in general, in part because they were largely poor. I mean, or they were often poor. And it was necessary to make the most use of everything. And so they were famous for a dish made with spinach stems. They were um, well-known in um, Modena for um, a dish of um, pea pods in which the pods were separated from the peas and cooked as a dish on their own. And what was being referred to before, the note in the recipe, um, because it's made with pork, fat. The note in the recipe says originally would have been goose fat because it is a Jewish Uh dish. Um, But in addition to that, there are certain vegetables that are associated with Jews, like the artichokes of the Cartofiano Judea, but there were things like fennel and things like eggplant in particular, which is a member of the Deadly Nightshade family. Yes, yes. yes. (laughs) And was considered poisonous. And yet the Jews used it and became famous for using it. What we don't know, as I indicated before, is if there were people using it, but they didn't become famous for using it, whereas the Jews did. But the usual tradition is that the Jews actually... Um, well, that whole Mediterranean, uh, the lower Mediterranean area, the Arabs and, and Muslims, I mean, a lot of this food all stems from that area, and they were using these these the, vegetables as well. The right? Jews also used a lot of the vegetables that came in with Columbus. Right. They were attributed to for introducing a lot of the New World yes. vegetables, right? Alessandra, you you have often said that... that Italians or, or a lot of cultures didn't really even like vegetables until, <laughs> until they learned about Jewish cuisine. Um, 
Yeah, and, 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 and just backing up a second to what Kara was saying, it's not really that only the Jews ate these vegetables. Only the Jews ate this vegetable in Italy, and, and in particular in central and northern Italy back then, because certainly in other countries, and even in southern Italy, uh, the non-Jews ate them as well. Sure. So, um, but by the way, another one is uh, green beans. Yes. Hmm. Um, yes. So, so the, the 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 ones from the Americas also, um, you know, because the Jews were involved in the trade from the New World, and so they they when when they brought these vegetables, they also introduced ways of cooking them, and for a while, these vegetables like pumpkin and tomato were associated with them in in Tuscany, in Livorno, in particular, some of the. Um, traditional dishes in general cooking, not just Jewish cooking, which are called alla Livornese, Livorno style, mm-hmm. were actually um, originally Jewish dishes because made with tomatoes. Right, they introduced tomatoes, and, the tomatoes right. and some say potatoes as well. Also, I just want to add here that Alessandra, um, one of the things I've been struck by is allusions in very old cooking manuscripts to something a la Abreica. Um, by major Renaissance cooks. And one of the things that Alessandra discovered recently is that there is a book called Anonimo Veneziano. Libro del Cuoco. Right. Um, that actually has in it one of the most famous Venetian things, which is Saor. And um, she can explain it to you. I will leave it to her because yes, it's so we, I can, every. Um, this is kind of interesting because Kara, Jane, and I had this whole email discussion about it um, because the the most famous the signature dish of Venice nowadays Venice general is uh, sarde in saor or sfoggi in saor it's basically fish that's deep fried um, it's made usually with large sardines um, and then after being deep fried it's marinated for several days in um, onions that are cooked in white wine, white vinegar, sometimes with sugar, raisins, and pine nuts. And um, this dish is said by some to have Jewish origins and to be a dish that was made by Jews because it would be um, it would keep well for Shabbat and the holidays, preserved um, in the preserved, preserved in the wine yeah, and yeah, vinegar. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 you know, a lot of non-Jewish Italian historians actually say that it was a dish that was already known in the 1300s because uh, it was taken on the ships because it would last for weeks without being refrigerated. And uh, I, it, it's it's actually listed. We were talking about it because right. I saw that it was one of the recipes in this Libro del Cuoco, which is a, a manuscript. Uh, um, a recipe collection of about 135 recipes, which was discovered at the end of the 19th century, but uh, that was published um, at the end of the 1300s um, by an anonymous Venetian. We can tell it was Venetian because it was published in Venice, but it's written in the Dial- educated, Dial- refined Venetian mm-hmm. dial- this language of the time. And and at the time, it was this was not specifically a Jewish recipe collection. I. I'm guessing that it's possible that it existed elsewhere in a more general way, Mm -hmm. that it was brought by Jews because, after all, Jews were coming north even before these events that drove them north. 
and that it became very associated with Jews and very popular in Venice. By and, Jews. And, yeah. and yes, but and it says, is luscious. Well, it has, I was saying, <laughs> it's it's still very good today. Yeah. So, yeah. also, I just wanted to say that in terms of these fifteenth and sixteenth century Renaissance books, I don't mean to suggest there are many instances of this, but it's a measure of the. Effect or importance or awareness of Jewish cuisine, that in those texts there are things called ala abreika or ala, yeah. you know that mean, identify were identified yes. with that cuisine, and right. you don't do that unless you're an outsider. Obviously, you don't have to say things like that. Right. So people did know what the Jews were doing, and also some of these cooks called for Jewish raised foie gras. Hmm. I, um, going back to the vegetables, I, I think of an, another really interesting Jewish use of vegetables was using lettuce, um, not just as a salad, but also braising with food, uh, braising with artichokes, braising with beans or with meat and fish. And I think um, that probably uh, developed because there were certain sumptuary laws in the Roman ghetto where the Jews were not only desperately poor, but they were limited to certain kinds of foods. And among them were salad greens. They could only eat the simplest salad right. greens. So um, lettuce would have been one of them. And necessity is the mother of invention. So they came up with a, a wonderful dish of um, anchovies cooked with curly mm-hmm. endive. And um, it's now considered a, a very chic dish. It was. It, it's a very savory dish. The anchovies and endive have lots of very fragrant olive oil that you would mop up with a crusty bread. Um, and you see a lot of these kind of dishes that came out of uh, the Roman ghetto. The artichokes really developed because uh, actually olive oil was very cheap. In, in the ghetto, and you, it, you could use up bits and pieces of, of fish, uh, like bacala, uh, of uh, vegetables, of awful liver, and so on, and batter and fry them, a, a technique probably learned in Arabic lands, and they were delicious. And in fact, people from outside the ghetto would come and buy these foods. That's how a lot of these foods were transmitted. I mean, we tend to think of the ghettos as, mm-hmm. um, you know, offering no mm-hmm. way of uh, actually having any kind of connection with the outside world. But well, actually, there was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we're going to talk more about that and get more specific on some of these dishes and share them with our listeners when we come back after a short break. You're listening to A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio network.org You're listening to Bohemian on Heritage Radio Network.org. The following program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. 
From the moment Route 11 potato chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. We are back on A Taste of the Past, talking with Cara De Silva, Jane Cohen, and Alessandra Rovati. We're talking about Cucina Breaca. And we ended talking about um, a lot of the um, delicious dishes that that were probably in existence before and that and that had a lot of influences. Let's talk specifically about some dishes that are um, popular today that that are long holdovers from from uh, uh, past times. Alessandra, particularly in Venice, what are some of the dishes, and I know you do a lot of, of cooking and on your blog, you have wonderful recipes as well as teaching these, these cooking classes. What dishes in particular uh, have hold more history that you often prepare? Are you talking about dishes that are well-known and, and now part of general um, cuisine or that yeah, are still specifically both, well, Jewish? Both, both. Okay. Well, um, first of all, I would say that, in, as I was mentioning before, in, in Venice, a lot of dishes that were Jewish in origins now have become parts of Venetian cuisine in general, and everybody enjoys them. And the ones that are said, in some cases, it cannot be proven to have Jewish origins. The most liked is the fish in Saur, the marinated fish. Um, and this is also said of the um, bigolin salsa, which are basically very thick whole wheat spaghetti in an anchovy and onion sauce. Mm. Basically, you 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 cook the onions in and, and the anchovies together in olive oil until they melt and you use it to dress also dressed heavenly <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless you have a date <laughs> yes. and then um, and then the sweets one of the uh, nice things about about Italians I think that Italians are really interested in Italian ethnic food um, and in, in 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 many of the Jewish communities including in particular Venice a couple of times a year there are even events that open up um, our community in sort of a day of Jewish culture um, to the outside um, and the, the cookies and pastries are particularly popular in Venice there's a bakery the kosher bakery also that always makes the traditional Jewish pastries and they're very popular with non-Jews as well um, but then there are dishes that are which are very few um, which remained more specifically Jewish and very traditional and those are the dishes uh, that are served specifically and only during the holidays and th- this is pretty obvious to everybody because even in America if you told an American not to, s- to serve something different from Turkey on Thanksgiving it would freak out <laughs> right. because on the holidays that's when we become we all become very very traditional and we don't like change um, so for Passover and for Rosh Hashanah and, and other holidays that's when we have very specific dishes some of which did not make it to the non-Jewish public. And some of them are preserved in a way that's semi-artificial. What I'm trying to say is that even if 
technically it, the, the union of Italian Jewish communities is orthodox um, uh, it's also a very assimilated um, Italians are more assimilated and um, a lot of them are not technically religious or observant. So the, the everyday dishes, you know, change and people eat what other Italians eat. Mm-hmm. But for the holiday dishes, we're very, very traditional. And in some of the small communities, for example, in Venice, there are community meals. For example, in Venice, this mutual aid society called Cuore in Concornia started organizing over 100 years ago a community Passover Seder And so really because of this community, Passover Seder and Rosh Hashanah, and now we also do the Tu Bishvat, the New Year of the Trees, um, we really uh, make the same dishes every year. And those are perpetuated for the new generations. The, the Jewish community of Venice also just launched a cooking school, like yes. Cucina del, del Ghetto this year, um, where they're teaching all the traditional Venetian Jewish recipes. And a lot of food journalists and Food bloggers, uh, non-Jewish from all over Italy are signing up for these classes. And hopefully in the next few years, um, there's going to be um, cooking vacations, uh, it, like a right. cooking school in right. English right. also for foreigners where they can learn these dishes. Oh, terrific. All right. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, dishes that might, as I mentioned in the opening, a lot of Italians even today aren't really aware that that a lot of the dishes that have become their favorites had their origins in Jewish cooking. Any dishes that surprise you from Italian cuisine? I was very startled when I read in Claudia Rodin's book that um, Risotto Milanese had its origins Uh in the ghetto of Venice with saffron um, being one of the spices that had come in that had come into the ghetto. And um, I, I just couldn't believe it. I so associated it with other things. And I think also with something like caponata, um, one of my super favorite dishes of Italy, um, I was also very surprised. I mean, I found out some years ago, but I was very surprised to find out that it's believed to be Jewish in origin, again, because of the eggplant, the tomatoes, that particular kind of almost Arabic mixture. Mm-hmm. That's a, I have to admit, that surprised in. me as well, caponata, that I, I just assumed that it was part of the more southern Italian repertoire. It is... <laughs> Yeah, and it is now, right. That's right. Uh, Jane, anything for you? Oh, I would have to say cassola, um, which is um, a dessert, a Roman dessert, kind of a cross between a pudding and a cheesecake, very ethereally light. And that's now, I believe, a, a pretty popular Christmas dessert for mainstream Italians originally uh, came from the Sicilian community and was brought up by Jews. Um, Jews were cheesemakers, many of them, in in Sicily. Uh, And another one that has been attributed to Jews is cold pasta dishes. Mm. Yeah, now how would that have happened except that, like all Italians, Jews really love their pasta. And not being able to cook on the Sabbath, they started having room temperature pasta dishes, um, originally made with either uh, moistened with either a beef broth or a sauce that's kind of similar to an avgolemino, mm-hmm. Greek uh, made with eggs and, and lemon. 
I was very startled when I found that out, too, because I had grown up in food, um, hearing that it was a sin to eat cold Cold pasta. pasta and to make cold pasta salads. And certainly, I mean, often they don't taste good. But then when I found out about this association, and of course, we're talking room temperature. Room temperature, not mayonnaise salads. No, no, don't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, even reheating pasta was supposed to be a sin. But as Italian Jews, we have a lot of tricks to repeat, to reheat pasta, you know, what you have to do to reheat it well and which types of pasta to use so that it can it can be reheated for um, Shabbat lunch. And doesn't everybody have those tricks now, too? I mean, yeah. it's, well, no. yes. It's, it's, what a great, because pasta is just, has taken over, you know, the world, really. So it's, and these dishes are everywhere. Kugel. Okay, let's talk kugel. Now, let's ha- talk matzo balls. Okay, let's talk matzo balls. Okay, then we'll talk kugel. Let's talk kugel. Let's talk kugel. I, I've been to talk kugel. It's actually, the word is very close. Okay. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I was just. I, I want to say something about Kugel because we were talking about dishes that people would be surprised to hear uh, that are like Jewish in origins. But I also wanted to mention a dish that really stayed Jewish and didn't make it out because it's weird. Um, and it's the most Kugel-like dish in Jewish Italian cuisine, and it's it's something that we eat on a particular holiday. Freezing sal. Freezing sal, oh. um, which is has other names in other communities. Frizzinsal is the name we use in Venice and Ferrara. And it's 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 a kind of like a noodle kugel, uh, but but different in flavor that we eat on a particular occasion. We eat it on Shabbat Beshalach, which is the Shabbat before the um, the New Year of Trees to Bishvat, and it's the the Shabbat during which we read the portion of the Torah that talks um, about the Jews crossing the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea. And uh, and this dish, which is preserved also in Venice in particular now because there's a community seder for Tu Bishvat, is made with um, homemade noodles, tagliatelle, uh, which are dressed with either um, goose fat, that would be the best, of course it's not so cholesterol friendly, uh, or with the juice from a roast. Um, and then they're layered in a pan with, you know, layers of tagliatelle dressed with this fat with um, and layers of uh, little pieces of homemade luganaga, like soft goose sausage uh, and raisins, the omnipresent raisins and pine nuts in a few layers and then baked until brown um, on the top. And bottom, and this is, I think, the most kugel-like dishes I, in like Jewish chimbal. Italian cuisine, and it did not make it to general Italian cuisine. No, I've seen it translated as Pharaoh's wheel. Wheel, yeah, yeah. yeah no, in, because in some communities it's called Rota del Faraone because they I say see. that it's round in shape to symbolize the wheels of the Pharaoh's okay. carriage. They also say some people also say, but I don't know if it's true, that the raisins represent the heads of the Egyptians yes, if, right. on the Red Sea, which sounds uh, a, a little, little mm. a, a little psycho. I, mean, but I don't know. I would just wanted to say that um, about matzo balls that obviously they were brought from Germany, but that doesn't mean they weren't also created. And I said recently that. Um, when we were all speaking together, that um, I had posted a picture of matzo balls on matzo ball soup on Facebook, 
and an Italian friend immediately interceded and said, oh my God, am I going to... Yes. <laughs> and used the Italian term for matzo balls, which were, he had grown up with and which were part of his life. He was not Jewish. What's made with bread, though, not with... And he Not referred salads. to them, and it was, I'm sorry, because they, they canceled, the sound canceled out, so it's repeat. C, it, it's like the word kugel. I don't know if it's related, but it's C-U-G-O-L-I. Aha. Uh-huh. So that was And so I was so startled because I didn't know that. But of course, I mean, at one point there was even Yiddish spoken in the ghetto. Because they're called nerdos in Eastern Europe. With a K, right? Noodles, yeah, and in uh, Northern Canada, Italy, yes. it was translated Canadarly. And actually, in Venice, we have a- another variation, which was called we called kugoli, which are like yes. little dumplings oh. made with breadcrumbs. Yes, which is what this guy was referring to. Oh. Although Alessandra tells me they're smaller no, than the kugoli the are smaller, and they're made with breadcrumbs. The Canadarly are large; they're eaten all over the Alps, and they're not made with no, breadcrumbs, no. but with I was just, of soft bread. I was just talking about appearance because mm-hmm. that's what he they extracted the from. Mm-hmm. They look exactly the same. Right. And matzo was a very big thing in the ghetto and also among visitors mm-hmm. to the ghetto, Christians. And there were even laws that um, said that you couldn't go to the ghetto to buy matzo. Mm-hmm. The, the Jews were very, I mean, it's just one of those totally bifurcated kinds of mm-hmm. relationships because the exoticism of the Jews um, was something that really attracted a lot of people. Right, and, well, and, yeah. and the food was good. And, and we'll fast forward to today and, and the ghettos, uh, the restaurants that were popular in the ghetto in, in Rome. Of course, there was always a, a several popular restaurants that we would go to because we wanted to eat some of the wonderful dishes. Rome's that that's changed a bit. Um, Venice, though, however, that the that's one of the more vibrant ghettos. And and, and um, one thing I wanted to mention was a town. Uh, this was a, a surprise to me. Was Pitigliano? Oh mm-hmm. yes. Um, Jane, do you want to address yeah, that? Yeah, Pitigliano is actually the town that Edda Servi Machlin came from. Um, Edda Servi Machlin, whom Americans know as the person who introduced us to the t- cuisine of the Italian Jews. She wrote several cookbooks, the classic cuisine of the Italian Jews. And her name, her maiden name, Servi, uh, means slave. And there's thought that they were descended from some of the original slaves that were brought to Jerusalem. It's a town in Tuscany, and though most of the Jews, I think, actually at this point, there are no Jews there anymore, but there is a bakery that's very popular, owned by Christians, um, and they make a lot of the a lot of the desserts that were really specialties of the Jews. They make something called Svrati, which is a Jewish New Year's kind of pastry. It's a pastry that has um, a stuffing of dried fruit. They also make these wonderful cookies called Torzetti and um, a yeast bread, an anise yeast bread called Bolo. So the memory of that community still lives on in the foods that people eat there. Mm-hmm. Well, there so there are still a lot of restaurants that people flock to, flock to, go to, seek out when they go to uh, the major cities um, to to taste this cuisine. Um, in Rome, uh, oh, that bakery, the bakery. Yeah, yeah. Was a, um, I have a list here someplace. Piperno was always a, a popular one, which is no mm-hmm. longer around. 
I recall. When I was living there, it was popular. Um, but there are bakeries and um, and restaurants. And how about in Venice? Well, in Venice, there's a bakery that's very famous. It's uh, it's called Volpi. It's in the ghetto, and they make all the traditional um, Passover cookies. But they make they make it, they make them all year. Um, and then near the holidays, near Shana Sukho, they also make this sweet bread with uh, raisins in it called bolo, which we for the whole time from uh, from from breaking the fast of Yom Kippur uh, up to the end of of Sukkot, the fall holidays. And then there's also a new restaurant called Osteria del Ghetto, where they serve traditional Jewish-Italian food. But there's actually several kosher restaurants. There's like a dairy restaurant, there's a Chabad restaurant besides mm-hmm. besides this. Venice is very well served because of the amount of tourists who right. go there. There, I, I found uh, a fascinating restaurant that opened in uh, Ferrara. I hadn't gone there. It was called Balabusta, which, um, <laughs> and, and, and actually, um, Ashkenazi Jews know the term uh, means um, a, a good housewife, right. someone who really can take care of a house. And they were supposed to be featuring some dishes on, the, it's not a kosher restaurant by any means, but some dishes from the uh, Ferrara a tradition, um, as we know, Ferrara was the area where um, the Garden of the Fizzi Contini's was was written about. But when I checked the menu recently online, I didn't see anything from the um, Italian Jewish repertoire. But it was really interesting that they that they took that name. Yeah. Well, there's actually a restaurant in uh, downtown yeah. Lower Manhattan. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, yes. Right? yes. Right. Well, I think that um, I thank all of you for your insights and and this discussion. We could. I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> and we could go on talking about the wonderful dishes, in, individual dishes, and I hope that we'll have another opportunity to talk because this is really culturally rich information. And I think what is interesting to note with the um, uh, Italian cuisine in particular is that each community really kind of developed its own cuisine and its own repertoire, each community within Italy. Um, and within the ghetto. And within the ghetto, right, but depending on where the people came from. Or depending on, uh, such a diverse ghetto as the right. one in Venice. Depending on the, right, the, the, where they came from, where the countries and the background they brought with them. Did you know them? some of the first coffee houses yes. in Italy were, you know, in the ghettos? And one of the areas that where, where coffee spread at first was among the Jews in the Kabbalistic circles to yes. keep them up for their night yeah. wakes. Yes. The whole, so there's so many different things to talk about. We can come back and do a whole thing we'll, on Jews yeah. and coffee. We'll do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. But, I, but at this point, I, I have to wrap it up at some point, and I think this is a good place to do it. And I want to thank again Jane Cohen, Cara Da Silva, and Alessandra Rovetti. And you can... Um, see some of their writings and their websites on our homepage. And again, I'm Linda Palaccio, and you've been listening to A Taste of the Past on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. 
Thanks for listening.